MP, it's our final event of the year. Oh, it's all a bit sad, Bretto, but after four big events for 2018, we are going out with a bang with one more wellness base camp, and the location for this one is regional Victoria, the great town of Bendigo awaits. Oh, and how's this for a lineup, MP? Bendigo will be rocking with the rock star of wellness, Damien Christoph. The art of self-love angel herself, Kim Morrison, hits the stage. As will the natural nutritionist, Steph Lowe. And I'll tell you what, Steph's presentation at the summit on fasting was a showstopper. You'll be there, Bretto. I'll be there too. And Wendy Stewart from Wendy's Way will be there to share her inspirational story, which really did go off at the Wellness Summit earlier this year. It's Saturday, October 27 at the beautiful All Seasons Resort Hotel in Bendigo and tickets are selling fast. Two for one tickets for this one day of inspiration, information and empowerment are available at thewellnessbasecamp.com. That's right, folks. Get your two-for-one tickets at thewellnessbasecamp.com before they run out and then the price goes up. Finish your year of wellness in style at The Wellness Base Camp in Bendigo, Saturday, October 27. Tickets at thewellnessbasecamp.com. The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their Healthy Kitchen Oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness and optimising your health, metabolism and longevity. While you're tuning in to today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 194 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Dr. Libby Weaver, one of Australasia's leading nutritional biochemists, who is also an author, speaker, and founder of the plant-based supplement range, BioBlends. Dr. Libby empowers and inspires us to take charge of our health and happiness through her books, live events, and nutritional support range. In today's episode, you will learn all about Dr. Libby's three-pillar approach, the biochemical, the nutritional, and the emotional. We discuss the impact of stress and societal pressures and what Dr. Libby refers to as rushing women's syndrome. We then take a deep dive into hormones, stress, fat burning, and so much more. Dr. Libby is an absolute wealth of knowledge, and I just know you're going to love today's show and feel inspired and motivated to improve your health and daily choices. Hi, Libby, and welcome to the show. Steph, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be chatting with you today. Look, I am so excited. I have been a fan of yours for many years now, and I feel very privileged to have you on the show, and I'm really you know, excited for our listeners to learn from you. So before we dive into today's topic, could you share with us a little bit about you, you know, your training, and what you've been up to in recent years? Most certainly, yeah. And I I think too, my background helps people to understand uh, the essence of the message and a lot of the things we'll touch on today. So I went to uni for 14 years and originally studied nutrition and dietetics uh, and then did honours and then did a PhD in biochemistry. So there's a lot of science in my background. 
But since then, I've worked with people one-on-one for 20 years. And for me, that's where the rubber really hits the road. That's where you get to see what makes a big difference in people's lives and also what doesn't. And you learn a lot, obviously, from, from what works and also from what doesn't. And I've combined my education with my years in clinical practice to create what I call my three-pillar approach. Uh, and they are three lenses through which I look at absolutely everything. So the three pillars are the biochemical, the nutritional, and the emotional. So the biochemical aspect of my work is where we look at the inner workings of the body. So for example, what leads us to make sex hormones, how do stress hormones interfere with sex hormones, for example, so the inner workings of the body. And the nutritional pillar is where we look at all the foods and nutrients that are essential to the optimum functioning of all those inner processes. And then I think I become some people's least favorite human when I talk about the foods, but especially the drinks uh, that can interfere with the optimum functioning of those inner processes. And then the third pillar is the emotional one, which is where I get people to consider why do you do what you do, even though you have the knowledge that you have, because it's not a lack of knowledge, not a lack of education for a lot of people these days that leads them to make unresourceful choices. So I bring all of that together in, in what I do. And I've written some books and create online uh, courses around Women's Health Weekends. Uh, and I'm currently in the middle of a tour, actually. So yeah, getting out and, and meeting people and hearing their stories is really special. Amazing. That's a beautiful summary. And, you know, I do agree with you. I think that I often say to my clients, it's not about a lack of knowledge because, you know, people come in to see you and maybe they're already eating real food or they might already be fasting or whatever it is. Um, but I, yeah, I do find there are these barriers that are really important to break down. So I love that you take such a holistic approach. I first actually came across your work. I believe it was um, around the time of your rushing women's syndrome. I think it might've been a YouTube talk that I saw. Um, I just wanted you to touch on that if you wouldn't mind, because I know that your book became a bestseller and it's something I share with a lot of my clients to this day. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I did a TEDx talk uh, and based on the concept of rushing woman syndrome. And it's important people understand that rushing woman syndrome is not a medical condition. It was just the title that I gave my book, but it was born out of my observation of enormous changes that were occurring in women's health. So I'd started to notice that um, women uh, would burst through the doors of my office uh, in, in a real intense kind of rush. And we were trying to cram more and more into our days. And the result of, of that relentlessly living uh, with essentially the fight or flight response activated, so with the sympathetic nervous system activated, uh, the, the long-term consequences of that can be disruption to really all, all the other endocrine glands, so our ovaries, uh, our thyroid, our adrenals, our pancreas, which are all obviously uh, glands in the body that produce a lot of hormones that regulate uh, you know, everything from blood glucose to sex hormone levels, which are obviously going to impact fertility as well as uh, so many other things. So it was, it was my observation of big changes in women's health that led me to write that book uh, and, and I guess really start to, to bring together the links between the constant and relentless perception of pressure and urgency that a lot of people live with these days and, and the repercussions of that. Yeah, such an important conversation. And um, what about rushing man syndrome? Does that exist? <laughs> I think most definitely it does. Uh, but I do think the psychology is quite different. And that's what I, I like to sort of pull all of that apart when I look at, I try to get to the base of absolutely everything that I do. So what's really at the heart of the rushing? And for men, it's often quite different. For women, a lot of us have been raised to be good girls. We've been raised to put the needs of other people ahead of our own. Uh, and there's beauty in that and, and immense contribution and kindness. But what fascinates me is that there are, there are women who can give and give and give and contribute as well as have fulfilling lives, of course. And then there are those who live like that and their health falls apart. So uh, that, that, that distinctive line fascinated me. And when I went and really looked at the history and how this was or why I thought this was all playing out, the way I tend to describe it is uh, that science suggests that humans have currently been on the planet for somewhere between 150,000 and 200,000 years, although there's some conjecture around that at the moment because some artefacts have been found in China that have been carbon dated to have been made by human hands that are over a million years old. So mm. I think in the not too distant future, we're going to learn that we've been here for a lot longer than we currently uh, appreciate, which is exciting. But um, for for this conversation, I'll just keep the example to, to humans have been here for 150,000 years. 
And I get people to visualise that as a 30 centimetre school ruler. So that's, that represents 150,000 years. And if you can then picture what one millimetre on that school ruler looks like, so the smallest unit uh, that you could see, that then represents 500 years. So if we then fast forward and to the, say the last 30 years, 30 years on that 30 centimetre school ruler is like a drop in the ocean of time. You wouldn't even be able to see it. It's not even a pinprick in its size uh, compared to the enormous amount of time we've been here as a species. So when, when we look at that and we consider the dramatic and rapid changes that we've undergone as a species in the last even 30 years, you know, it wasn't that long ago that when we left the house, no one could get hold of us. I'd actually really like to bring that, <laughs> no. bring that back. <laughs> I think about that all um, the time. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, the, the food supply has obviously changed dramatically. When you, you know, when you think of the school ruler example, it wasn't that long ago where we were chasing our food, foraging for food, growing our food, uh, and we had no other options. Uh, social media is only just over 10 years old. And then from a women's health perspective, when you think of the enormous amount of time that we've been on the planet, I can remember when I was doing my research for that TEDx talk that you referred to on YouTube, uh, I found an American postage stamp that was released in 1939 and it was a cartoon drawing of a woman with her hair in rollers and she's flexing her bicep and the words on the postage stamp said, we need you. And that was really the first time women were called into the workforce in, in large numbers because the men had gone to war and that was only 1939. So it's not even a hundred years ago. So when you think of even that, the last 100 years and compared to the 150,000 years that we've been on the planet, uh, the way I phrase it is it wasn't that long ago that women, that we were given the opportunity to do what were traditionally our father's jobs, but a lot of us have maintained what were traditionally our mother's responsibilities. And what's unfolded for a lot of women these days is a frantic double shift of work day and night with very little, if any, rest. And from an intelligence perspective, of course, we are completely capable of of all of this and of matching it with the boys in any arena. But what I want people to deeply appreciate is that we have never, ever, ever asked our bodies to live like this before. And the rebellion of, of some of our bodies is, is uh, you know, immense hormonal imbalances and, and this constant feeling of stress and pressure and urgency. It's very new to our chemistry. Yeah, absolutely. And again, a beautiful summary. I think great context, that ruler will stick with me. I think that's a really good visual that I'm sure our listeners will agree. So let's dive into hormones a little bit more. I just wanted to sort of keep the men involved if we could, because we do have, you know, women um, and male listeners. So I just want to encourage, you know, our, our male listeners to, to, to continue to tune in because we've all got a women in our life and we will try and involve you guys in some way, shape or form. Um, but of course, hormones play a really powerful role in our body. You know, they control many different functions that I'll let you describe for us, if you'd like to firstly give us a bit of an overview as to what those key ro uh, roles are, and then we'll dive down into a couple of, um, yeah, more, I guess, intricate areas. For sure, Steph. So there are over 50 hormones in the body. And for both men and women, the hypothalamus in the center of the brain is the ultimate control switch. That's really the master switch. And the hypothalamus communicates then with the pituitary gland at the base of the brain and I like to call her in both men and women, she's the mother gland. So she mothers everybody else. So she's the one that then sends messages to all the other endocrine glands. So the thyroid, uh, the pancreas, the adrenals, the ovaries in women and the testes in men uh, to then release their hormones. So the hypothalamus uh, asks the question 24 seven, am I safe? So it's uh, for forever assessing our body physically. It's forever assessing our environment and it's also checking in with us emotionally when it asks that question. So it's a really big and important one. So, for example, let's say we're stuck at traffic lights and we might be we're running late for a meeting and we're holding our body with tension. So our shoulders are up around our ears. We might be gripping the steering wheel really tightly. When the hypothalamus in that moment says, am I safe? Because of all the muscular tension, the feedback immediately is going to be no. Because, again, historically, the only reason we would have muscle tension is when there was a threat. Uh, the hypothalamus will, will assess our blood levels of absolutely everything, including stress hormones like adrenaline. And because historically the only reason we ever made adrenaline was when our life was literally in danger, when there was a physical threat to our life, when the hypothalamus says, am I safe and sees adrenaline present, again, the feedback is no. So the hypothalamus then says to the pituitary, 
we're not safe, you need to put all the other glands on red alert. So a cascade of information is then sent through to all those other glands I just mentioned uh, and they respond based on that information. So, for example, if you think uh, of blood sugar regulation, the pancreas is going to make insulin to have to do that. So it can be on the receiving end of false information because when your life, when the body's getting the message that your life's in danger, it needs to mobilize glucose to fuel you to get out of danger rapidly. That's what the fight or flight response does. And so if your blood glucose level then shoots up because uh, your body can release glycogen uh, that's been stored in your liver and your muscles, up your blood glucose level goes. But if you're sitting on your bottom in a car or you're sitting at a computer, uh, while all of this is happening inside you, you're not going to utilise that mobilised glucose. So that's when uh, the pancreas then has to make even more insulin to then put that glucose back into storage. Uh, and if there's any left over, it will be stored in, in your body fat. Another example with the way this can mess with us uh, when it goes on for too long is, uh, for example, if it's around the time mid-cycle when a woman is going to ovulate, if the information to the pituitary gland is that we're not safe, then uh, the body may decide that it's not safe enough for her to ovulate, so therefore fertility can be compromised. Plus, the hormone that we make after we ovulate, which is called progesterone, uh, is a very powerful anti-anxiety agent. It's a powerful antidepressant and it's a diuretic, so it allows us to get rid of excess fluid. And uh, if a woman doesn't ovulate, then those things can also be affected. So that question, am I safe, is very, very impactful for both men and women and their body's ability to then regulate hormones. And it's one of the biggest changes that we are currently facing, I think, with our health because it's brand new. So it wasn't, if you think about stress in the past, let's say someone from another tribe started to chase us with their spear in that moment, you know, we'd go, oh, my goodness, and get ready to fight or get out of there. Uh, but then as soon as we had escaped from the danger, our adrenaline, our stress hormone levels would return back to baseline. We'd be back to homeostasis, back to balance. Mm-hmm. But these days, because we make adrenaline, uh, people might want to block their ears right now, we make adrenaline whenever we consume caffeine and also because of our perception of pressure and urgency or worrying about what other people think of us. Uh, so whatever it is that leads to adrenaline, the body hasn't yet learned to discern the difference between the adrenaline we make uh, from a physical threat to our life like a car driving out in front of us and we've got to suddenly slam our brakes on and the adrenaline that we make when we've got 600 unopened emails, it's all the same to the body. Mm, So, yeah, so for these days, for a lot of people, stress is constant and relentless. So they have constantly high circulating levels of adrenaline and that is very, very new to our chemistry because in the not very recent past, there were just big surges of adrenaline and then it would be gone. So, yeah, that's a big change. Huge. And obviously the flow on effect of that is huge. So you spoke about the impact on um, circulating glucose levels and what the body then does as a result. Can you just summarize how that actually impacts our ability to burn fat? Mm. So obviously many of your listeners, I'm sure will be familiar that there are only two fuels for the body, glucose and fat. We don't actually use our protein as a fuel. Uh, It can be converted back into glucose if it needs to be for fuel, but uh, glucose and and fat are our fuel sources. And we're always burning a combination of both. However, in different, in different ratios. So sometimes it'll be, we'll be burning more glucose and less fat Mm -hmm. and other times vice versa. So when we go into the fight or flight response, because the body's getting the message that our life is literally in danger, it needs a fast burning fuel to power us to get out of that danger. Uh, So obviously between glucose and fat, it's glucose that's our fast burning fuel. And so if it's been a while since we've eaten and our blood glucose level uh, is the lower end of the normal range, then we will release stored glycogen from the liver and the muscles. uh, And obviously that will be converted back into glucose. So up blood glucose levels go. Uh, because that's that's then designed to help us to get out of out of danger. But if we're not active in, in when that's happening, if we're as I said, if we're sitting on our bottom at a computer or in a car, then we're not going to use that mobilised glucose, and it can't stay in the blood because your body knows that that's going to damage the lining of your blood vessels. So that's when insulin will be made, uh, and you'll transport that glucose back into the liver and the muscles to be stored again as glycogen for later. But if there's some left over, then that's, that will be put into, the, into fat cells and their size can just continue to increase and increase over time. And obviously, you can hear in the way that I've described that, that uh, regardless of how we're eating, if we're constantly living with that stress response switched on, you can hear how stress can lead to insulin resistance because when you put your body through that every single day, 
day after day, decade after decade, uh, the body can very gradually uh, become become essentially deaf to insulin and you end up having to make more and more insulin for the same job that, that you once did. So, yeah, it's a, a, a long term it can have a big impact on your body's ability to use body fat effectively as a fuel. Absolutely. And I think personally, I find this to be an area of health and wellness that is underappreciated. Like, I don't know if you have the same experience, but you can let me know in a moment about whether people really take that stress conversation seriously or whether we're so ingrained in the calorie fallacy that we kind of tend to ignore this holistic approach and this conversation around stress. What do you think? Uh, I wrote a book a few years ago called The Calorie Fallacy. <laughs> that was the best name ever. <laughs> um, to, to really pull all of this apart because, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly when I was at uni, we were taught that the only thing that impacted body shape and size was the calorie equation, i.e. how much you uh, ate versus how much you burnt. But uh, when you look at the history of how the calorie equation was first developed, uh, it was first published back in 1918. So World War I was just coming to an end and a lot of people didn't have enough food and it was extraordinary science at the time because it was what they worked out was that humans the human body had a basic need for energy uh that that would actually keep them alive it was never supposed to be a weight you know a a body size or weight control mechanism it was just literally designed to keep people alive and where it still has resident sorry where it still has relevance i think is in the emergency department of a hospital I've worked in one, I've seen it in action. So if someone's had an awful uh, accident and they've got to be tube fed, uh, then the dietitian on that ward needs to know how many calories, how much carbohydrate, fat and protein that person's going to need to literally keep them alive until they can start to eat again. So it's, it's wonderful science where I think used in, in that setting is, mm-hmm. is truly life-saving. But where we've gone astray with it is in this world of plenty that we now live in, uh, it's been used, uh, I think, as a in a way that it was never really developed to to be used, and it leads to a lot of fear. It leads to a mindset of deprivation, and it can also lead to malnourishment because when you're focused on counting calories, you're not focused on the vitamin and mineral and antioxidant and phytochemical content of the food, and they're all the things that keep us alive. They're the things that fuel all the biochemical reactions inside of us. So it's a it's a mindset of deprivation and fear rather than a mindset of, of nourishment, uh, which, as I said, is going to keep us alive. So, And then when you actually – I had an experience very early on in my working life uh, that led me to go back to my geeky biochemistry textbooks with the question in my mind, what leads the human body to get the message that it needs to burn fat and what leads the human body to get the message that it needs to store fat? And I put those answers into my first book, Accidentally Overweight. So, uh, And there are nine factors and some of these hormonal mechanisms very much play a role. So insulin, for example, is a fat storage hormone. Estrogen in excess uh, is a fat storage hormone. Our thyroid hormones play an enormous role in, in metabolic rate as well as temperature regulation. Uh, and then, of course, cortisol, one of our other stress hormones. Uh, historically, if we go back to the school ruler concept, for all of that time that we've been on the planet, when stress was chronic, it involved times when food was scarce, so floods and famines and wars. But now in modern times, our chronic stress tends to come from concerns about relationships or finances or health concerns of our own perhaps or the health concerns of a loved one. So um, when, as I said earlier about adrenaline, it's the same for cortisol. The body hasn't yet learnt to discern between the cortisol that we would make if there was really a famine and the cortisol that we make when our stress is, is chronic, as it is for so many people these days. And because when the body thinks there's no food left in the world, your body has your back. It's not trying to betray you. It's not trying to upset you or make you sad or make you frustrated. It's, it's responding to the messages it's receiving. So if your body fat levels start to go up and you're eating the same and moving the way you always have, then there's something else at play that your body thinks it's doing you a favour by, by making your clothes tighter. And cortisol is a very common one these days because if it's getting the message that there's no food left in the world, the best thing it can do for you is to give you some more body fat because you're a lot more likely to still be around when the food supply is restored. So uh, cortisol does lots of good things for us. It's an anti-inflammatory, for example. It helps to, in the right amount, it's very good for the immune system but when it's in excess, it can be a real problem because it's a catabolic hormone. It leads us to break our muscles down and that's how it slows metabolism down. So it has a pretty distinct fat deposition pattern as well. We get fat around the middle. 
we grow bingo wings on the back of our arms and we grow what I lovingly call a, is a back veranda. So we get back fat. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the, so it does that because all the organ it thickens up, thickens us up on our torso. And it does that because all of the organs that keep us alive, except for our brain are all housed in our torso. So if there really was a famine, then your body thinks it's doing you a favor by giving those organs warmth and protection and nourishment. So that's what I mean, that your body has your back. It's only <laughs> responding to the information it's receiving. And it's one of the, one of the challenges we've got in, at this point in human evolution is to begin to communicate the truth to the body, not, uh, you know, all of this stress and fear that, that, it's, that it's picking up on when thankfully for us we are so, so fortunate to be as safe as we are. Yeah. Amazing. And yeah, it all makes a lot of sense when we think about those protective mechanisms and, and certainly what we are facing in 2018. So I wanted to then talk about another little subtopic of appetite regulation. So you spoke about the hypothalamus before, but could you give us a little bit of a download on what hormones are involved here and what we might see in a state of imbalance? Mm, yeah, so I love this question, Steph. So leptin and ghrelin are the two main hormones that can impact appetite. There are others, but they're two of the big guns. So leptin uh, is a hormone that's actually made by body fat cells and it's designed to decrease appetite, whereas ghrelin is a hormone that increases appetite and it's made by cells that line the gastrointestinal tract. So uh, one of the biggest things that can mess up their balance is when we don't sleep enough. So there's very strong science. Uh, showing that when people get only five hours sleep a night as opposed to eight or, or nine, uh, but a minimum of eight, um, the difference in these hormone levels and uh, their, their, the person's ability to actually regulate their own appetite was, was highly significant. So it's really easy to think, oh, you know, if you sleep less, you're awake for more hours. So therefore you've got, you know, more hours where you've got access to the fridge. It's, it's easy to sort of think about, uh, Body, body shape and size, BMI, et cetera, going up because you've just got access to, you're awake to have access to more food across those times. But it goes way beyond that. So, um, and particularly because of uh, the body's ability to, it loses its ability to regulate these hormones, leptin and ghrelin, when we get five, uh, when we only get five hours sleep a night. So it fascinated me when that's all started to come through that, you know, it's common sense that we need a lot of sleep, but uh, adults need seven to nine hours per night and we haven't yet learned how to overcome that aspect of our biology but a lot of people try and you know they stay up late trying to get more done um, and when we do that long term it can it can have a detrimental impact on our body's ability to regulate those two uh, appetite dependent hormones yeah absolutely I think again another area that I, I feel is not dissimilar to that stress conversation like when I my clients come in I think yep they're, they're going to see a nutritionist we're going to talk about food <laughs> but if you start yeah. talking about stress management or sleep or sleep hygiene or blue light or whatever it might be they look at you like you're a little bit strange but again when you put it in context of the hormones and what that imbalance can do and the flow and effect of that, it shows us how important these foundations of, I guess, the more holistic approach really are. It's so, it, it can feel, I think, sometimes overwhelming to people and you think, oh, there's all these hormones I've got to worry about when the principles in your life that you, that, that to apply to, to restore hormonal balance often I think that they're really common sense, you know, and sleep obviously is one of those. Yeah, love it. Absolutely. All right, our final little subtopic um, in this area of our discussion is about our skin. You know, we get a lot of people um, that are either facing sort of chronic skin issues or maybe they're seeing a bit of a flare over the course of the month. So could you talk about both of those, please? Absolutely. So uh, the two main roads for waste products out of the body are the urinary system and the bowels. And if they can't keep up with the load going in, or if some of the biochemical pathways inside the body that are needed to prepare certain substances before they can actually be eliminated, which I'll explain in more detail in a second, if any of those things are compromised, well, the body says, well, the, these waste products, if they accumulate, are going to be a big problem for us. They can't stay inside of us. And that's when the skin says, well, I'm another road out of the body. You can use me. 
So basically we don't want our skin to have to step in to be another road out of the body for waste products. We want to make sure that our urinary system and our bowels can keep up with it. And then a big, obviously the big players, particularly with our bowels being efficient, are our gallbladder function and our liver function, as well as the whole function of the digestive system. So uh, all of those little steps usually need to be looked at when someone has congested skin regularly, when that's something that never really goes away. So the way that, uh, and I'll tie this back in then to um, skin that changes cyclically. So that's something obviously that tends to happen for women, each women on a monthly basis but I want to start it right back at puberty because I think it's um, a big deal for both boys and girls, for both men and women, when skin changes start to happen uh, around puberty. And for some people, it doesn't properly go away. So at puberty, obviously, it's, uh, we see a big surge in sex hormone production, uh, primarily testosterone for boys uh, with a little bit of estrogen and progesterone. And primarily it's estrogen and progesterone for women with a smaller amount of testosterone. So all the same hormones, just in different ratios. And with that surge in sex hormones, the sebaceous glands get a message to produce more sebum. So we then have more of that oily substance traveling to the surface of the skin. And we have bacteria living all over our body and that they love eating sebum. So when there's more sebum available to them, they increase in numbers and so we then start to notice that as skin congestion or little lumps under the skin. And a lot of people's approach to that is I've got to, I need to clean my skin more effectively. So they'll often buy harsher substances, harsher scrubs, chemicals to, to synthetic chemicals to really scrub their skin. And when we do that, we break what's called the acid mantle, which is uh, the layer, a waxy sort of layer that's all over the surface of our body. And the word acid there is very important that the outside layer of the body needs to be acidic, have an acidic pH, which is a pH of less than seven. It needs to be acidic because it really forms part of the immune system. It's, it stops all the substances in the atmosphere and in the air and all the bugs that live all over us. It stops them from actually penetrating and getting in. So when we scrub our face and we break that acid mantle, the bacteria can actually penetrate uh, through and take up residence in the pores of the skin. And that's where they can cause inflammation and infection and they live very happily there and we get often very sad or frustrated about that. So to break that vicious cycle, uh, we need to uh, sometimes change how the person is eating. So for me, there's no such thing as junk food. There's just junk and there's food. Mm -hmm. But at the moment in, in, the, in the Western world, we do call food whole real food, which is, that's beautiful. But it's, uh, people have made it, real, I feel like they've made food really complex and uh, as humans, you know, thinking of the school ruler again as humans, it's only up until the very recent past all we've ever eaten is food, but now we have access to all this junk. So often we've got to switch to a, a whole food, real food way of eating. Uh, and then sometimes additional liver support is needed because in, when we have sex hormones for both men and women, when we have sex hormones circulating in our blood, they don't survive forever. They don't, they don't have their powers forever. And once they've done their job, we can't just get rid of them. The liver actually has to alter their structure slightly before we can incorporate them into our urine and feces and get rid of them. So all that means is that once the hormone has done its job, it travels to the front door of the liver. And there are two stages to detoxification. Detoxification is literally just a transformation process where the liver has to take substances that if they were going to accumulate in your body, they'd be harmful to you. The liver has to take those substances and change them into something less harmful so that you can then uh, incorporate them into your own or feces and get rid of them. So with sex hormones, uh, when they arrive at the front door of the liver, they undergo what's called phase one change. So I often get people to imagine that, that the structure of the sex hormone arriving looks like an olive. And then the change that it undergoes is it gets a toothpick stuck in it. So it's just a little bit different. And then it will choose one of the pathways in phase two liver detoxification to travel along where it gets changed again. So you just imagine the toothpick gets snapped. And then so once it's been fully detoxified going through those two stages, then it can be incorporated uh, into uh, urinal feces and leave your body. However, what happens for a lot of people uh, these days, especially, uh, is that the phase two liver detoxification pathways get all but the traffic on that gets all banked up like traffic on a motorway or like airplanes trying to take off from an airport the traffic's all banked up 
and the liver will always prioritize the external substances that you've consumed. So if you've had bucket loads of biscuits and bucket loads of, sh- bucket loads of Chardonnay for the last 20 years, um, the liver is going to prioritize those things that you've consumed before it's going to deal with something that your body has made itself like testosterone or estrogen or progesterone. And so instead of the sex hormone being fully transformed, being fully detoxified, it only undergoes phase one and it can't sit in the middle of the liver because there's more rubbish constantly coming in the front door. So the best way to visualize this is that, because it's not scientifically accurate, but just so you can visualize a mechanism, it's as if the liver has a trap door and it releases this slightly altered form of the sex hormone back into the blood and you start to recycle it. And that then obviously adds to sex hormone imbalances but in both men and women but also skin problems so that's why the liver its function is so incredibly important in having lovely clear skin uh and uh obviously the way we eat plays a really big role in in the liver being able to do that work yeah absolutely i hope that makes um the importance of you know looking after what you eat you know for your liver health and for your skin health really really important but i can imagine there's so many other flow-on effects that that would have obviously if your liver is not moving into phase two that's going to lead to lots of other issues down the track yeah hugely so it's essentially when the liver's not able to clear hormones in women it can lead to pmt so heavy clotty painful periods mood swings that go anywhere from immense irritability to intense sadness swollen tender congested breasts uh and uh similarly it's harder to see in men obviously because they don't menstruate each month uh but testosterone obviously plays a really big role in muscle mass in libido in happiness in motivation even in bone density uh, which, but some of those things can be a little bit harder to see and it's easy to attribute them to, to other things in life sometimes. So our sex hormones and, and our liver function yeah, play a big role in how we feel and function every day. Yeah, absolutely. So good. So there's some key areas. Obviously, we can start to see what an imbalanced um, hormonal picture would look like. Is there anything else that we can use to identify signs of hormonal balance? And you know, if we are starting to pick up some of these symptoms in ourself, what do we do next from a testing or, you know, diagnostic point of view? It really depends on the type of person you are. Some people love evidence on paper for what they're experiencing. So they like to literally see the results of blood tests or saliva tests or urine tests. And all three of those can be used to assess certainly sex hormone levels. They can also be used to assess, um, stress hormone levels. So um, those three mediums, yeah, you just can't compare one to the other. So if you have sex hormone tests in your blood uh, and you've also got some in your saliva, you don't compare those to each other. You only ever compare blood with blood and saliva with saliva, for example. Mm -hmm. And another really important thing is to work with a practitioner who knows how to interpret the results because tests can be a bit useless if you're not working with someone who can actually uh, make sense of what you see on, on, on that paper. So some people really love uh, to see numbers, uh, as I said, printed out, and so their test results like that, whereas there, you know, good practitioners can work a lot of things out from your symptoms uh, and particularly when they're experienced and, and guide you from there. So it really depends on, on what you prefer. And in saying all of that, nothing in the body stands alone. So, for example, we were talking about leptin, the appetite-regulating hormone earlier. Uh, when and I'm just sharing this because it shows you how everything is interrelated in the body. So when the pituitary gland talks to the thyroid, it uses a hormone called TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, and that's then supposed to wake up the thyroid gland to make its hormones. So T4, which is inactive thyroid hormone, and T3, which is the active thyroid hormone that regulates temperature and drives metabolism. Now, there are nutrients involved in all of those reactions, so iodine and selenium. But iron is also necessary, and we don't often hear about iron's role in good thyroid hormone production. So when we're iron deficient, instead of T4, the inactive thyroid hormone being converted into T3, the active thyroid hormone, that doesn't happen efficiently. And instead, the T4, the inactive hormone, gets converted into something else called reverse T3, which doesn't have the same uh, metabolism driving effects. Now, when that's going on, that can then make your body go deaf to leptin. So you still make leptin trying to regulate your appetite, but it can't, the body can't hear it anymore. 
So when our thyroid isn't working effectively, it can really mess with, uh, with appetite regulation. And in fact, a lot of people with an underactive thyroid will say they never feel hungry and they feel like they eat like little tiny birds compared to their friends uh, and their body, their clothes continue to get, to get tighter. So I just use that example to, to demonstrate how nothing in the body stands alone. Everything is, is uh, interrelated. Yes, I absolutely agree. And I think that's a really good way to look at things because historically and, and not to, um, you know, criticize conventional medicine, but I do feel like we're in this trap of looking at the body as these separate systems rather than this really whole, quite complex interrelated system. Mm, very much. And in a way we're, we're fortunate that we've got access to, you know, more and more people sharing information. Obviously we have to sometimes be discerning about where that information comes from. But uh, I think, you know, the more people want to learn about their body and, and empower themselves, it helps them to have, you know, sort of higher level conversations and hopefully get the help that they need. Yeah. Love it. So good. All right. I've got a couple of um just more practical questions for you. I wanted to move in a direction of kind of solutions because we've set the foundation of what a hormonal imbalance picture looks like, but how do we get out of that? What are your most sort of, I guess, successful practical solutions on how to best support our hormones? Uh, so from right back at the start of the conversation, when we talked about the hypothalamus saying, am I safe? It, it, that's the ultimate we have to communicate safety to our body, whatever that looks like for us. So on a physical level, that means uh, less muscle tension. So for some people that is diaphragmatic breathing, lowers muscle tension, magnesium and calcium are two minerals that are muscle relaxants. Uh, so looking at, you know, and having plenty of vegetables going in uh, in the way that we eat uh, uh, gives us a lot of those minerals that, that help the nervous system and the muscles to actually relax. So, and a lot of breathing obviously always sounds too simple to make a big difference, but it plays a significant role in, in your chemistry. It plays a significant role in the messages that your body's getting. So when we breathe in a short, sharp, shallow way in the upper part of our chest, it's usually adrenaline driving that. So you might be sitting around a boardroom table um, or peacefully watching something on Netflix and you're breathing in a short, sharp, shallow way and uh, that's communicating to your body that your life is literally in danger. Whereas when we breathe diaphragmatically uh, and our lower abdomen moves in and out uh, with our breath and uh, a more yoga type breathing, when we do that, you communicate safety to your body and that lowers stress hormones more effectively than anything and, and obviously communicates safety to the body. So they can be two simple little steps that we can take to um, begin to communicate safety to the body. Obviously, it's nutrients that drive all the biochemical reactions inside of us. Uh, so for one substance, so cholesterol, for example, is the building block of all of our steroid hormones, of all of our sex hormones. So the biochemical pathway goes from cholesterol, it gets converted into a big, long, silly word called pregnenolone. Pregnenolone then becomes progesterone and then progesterone uh, will, it, it for the road, the biochemical pathway splits there and progesterone can either become cortisol, testosterone or estrogen. And uh, for that original conversion to happen of cholesterol into pregnenolone, we need essential fatty acids and zinc, as well as a couple of other nutrients. But those two people tend to be low in. We only really get our essential fats from oily fish, uh, walnuts, flax seeds, chia seeds. Uh, there's a type of essential fat as well in evening primrose oil, borage oil and black currants, whole black currants because it's in the seed. Uh, and then uh, zinc, our only real food sources that we have left in the world of zinc are oysters and red meat, and there's a little bit in eggs uh, and a little bit in seeds, sunflower seeds and pumpkin seeds. So if we're deficient in essential fatty acids or zinc, the cholesterol accumulates and uh, we then become uh, lower in those sex hormones so we don't end up converting the cholesterol into the sex hormones effectively. So again, uh, making sure that your diet is lovely and dense with nutrients so that all the biochemical pathways inside of us work effectively. Uh, so the breath work and a nutrient-dense way of eating are two critical steps to great hormonal balance. Yeah, love it. And so simple, something everyone can be doing. Just a side note, do you often see like high cholesterol readings with low sex hormones due to that low conversion? Oh, yeah, hugely, particularly uh, both men and women, but I see it a lot in men. So as, um, as I'm sure your listeners will be aware, from the age of 30 onwards, if we don't do anything to maintain our muscle mass, we start to lose it. 
So, um, and with loss in muscle mass comes a loss of testosterone. And uh, with that, um, for men, often their cholesterol will start to accumulate, whether it's from a nutritional deficiency, whether it's because the liver isn't doing, it's involved in this whole conversion process as well. Sometimes the liver over time, in both men and women, but in this example for men gets uh, really congested because of lifestyle choices uh, and then the cholesterol starts to accumulate and then there's not enough testosterone. That's a very common scenario and they'll then present with you know, sadness, uh, very low mood, low motivation, uh, low libido, low muscle mass loss. It, it really plays a big role in men's happiness. And tragic really because you can imagine the amount of people that are then being prescribed statin drugs and the, the problem just is never solved and, and gets worse in another direction. Yeah, exactly, Steph. And that's why I, I try to empower people in everything I do with my seminars, my online courses, everything to my books to understand the mechanisms behind things so that then if you find out, for example, that you've got, got high cholesterol, the first thing you want to think is, okay, my, it's my liver's job to clear cholesterol from the body. When, when you have a blood test for cholesterol, 80% of it has been made by the liver itself inside you and your diet contributes about 20% to that number. Uh, the reason the liver tends to switch on its cholesterol production is when there's inflammation. So if you can begin to, to, to understand the mechanisms behind things, you're in far more in the driver's seat of your own health because you can think, all right, well, for three months, I'm going to be really focused on supporting great liver function and then I'll get another test and see where I'm at. And for a lot of people, it's, it's improved and it's, and it's in, back, into the normal, back into the normal range with, with looking after their liver. Amazing. I think everyone just needs to rewind the podcast a couple of minutes and listen to that again, because for me, that's everything. You've got to get in the driver's seat of your own health. And I think, yes, when you take that little bit of extra time to understand the mechanism or get support to do so, then you're not at the mercy of someone else who might be, you know, with all good intentions, but perhaps misinformed can make the world of difference. Yeah, amazing. So I'd love to give you a little bit of space to um, share what fun projects you have coming up first um, and then where we can find more about you online. Oh, thanks, Steph. That's so kind. So I don't see patients uh, anymore face-to-face. I travel too much to look after people in the way that I want to. So the way I connect with them now is uh, in the forum of my online courses. So I've got one that I've called Weight Loss for Women, even though I've never weighed a single client. I've never had a set of scales in any of my offices over the years. And that's because uh, d- despite doing a lot of weight loss work, so people would come to me wanting to wanting to lose weight, but I'd go about asking them a gazillion different questions about you know everything from do you get headaches, do you get sinus congestion, do you get reflux, do you use your bowels every day, on and on the questions would go. And, uh, and very few people, if any, would ever not have a problem in any of those areas. So I would then set about correcting whatever they've told me is wrong in those other areas. And then weight loss would be a consequence of that. So it helped me to form my concept of most people will tell you that you've got to lose weight to be healthy. And I'll tell you the opposite's true. That you've got to be healthy to lose weight. So, uh, I've designed this nine week online course. The next one starts on the 1st of October. Actually, we only do four a year. And uh, that helps people to truly understand all these, all these mechanisms, the nine factors that, that lead the body to get the message that it, of what it takes to, to burn fat rather than store it. Uh, and I'm there in the forum answering questions. I do audio recordings uh, as well to support the participants in that course. I run um, what I call Essential Women's Health Weekends, uh, predominantly in Australia and New Zealand. So uh, they're 20 hours of time over a weekend where we do a great big deep dive on understanding the body in far more depth and and getting a plan of action for each individual who attends. So they're very, very special. There's often tears as well, a bit, lots of laughter. I can uh, imagine. <laughs> uh, and uh, I've written 12 books. My latest book is called The Beauty Guide, but it's not a fluffy beauty book. It's the tagline on it is your body, your biochemistry and beliefs. So it talks about, of course, on a physical level, what's needed for lovely hair, skin and nails. Um, it also talks about the body being a barometer and being a vehicle of communication. So right now, obviously, we can get fake nails, uh, hair extensions. You can have your eyebrows tattooed back on if the hair starts to fall out. And we're really privileged that we're living at a time where we've got access to those things that can be beautiful for people's confidence. Uh, so by all means, if, if those things appeal, you go for it. But my message is that if the outer third of your eyebrow hair, for example, starts to fall out, uh, it's usually something happening inside you that's being communicated on the outside so your thyroid might need some attention or you might have chronic iron deficiency 
And if we don't act on uh, changing those challenges on the inside, uh, it can lead to much bigger health consequences down the track. So I always encourage people to use changes with those beauty bits uh, to work out what's happening inside. And the book also has a much deeper conversation, of course, about our self-worth, our values, uh, the way we perceive ourselves, uh, because obviously a lot of stress can come for people when, they're, when, they're, when their self-worth is very low. So it's a, it's a very deep conversation as well about the, the culture of comparison that we're living amongst at the moment because really not that long ago we probably cared about what five people thought of us, our parents, you know, your best friend, maybe a school teacher, probably a boy. But um, <laughs> these days people care about what thousands of people think of them and a lot of them are strangers. And I don't know if we really realise that stress is sort of a, and it's almost like an achiever's word for fear, I think. And I think what most people are, are frightened of is what other people think of them. So I try to have a very authentic conversation in the book about that as well. Yes, one that's very relevant. So thank you so much for including that in all the work that you do. So where can we go to learn more about you and check out your upcoming events and get our hands on some of those amazing books? Oh, thank you. The, my website is drlibby.com, so drlibby.com. Uh, and, yeah, there's all the information about all the things that, that I offer and that I've created uh, are there, So as well as lots of blog posts so you can read more about all these types of things. And lots of delicious recipes. I was eyeing those off earlier today. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, don't make you salivate, don't they? It's so Absolutely. Good. All that real food, Steph. <laughs> All that real food. I love it. Look, it's been an absolute honour to chat with you today and thank you again for sharing your knowledge. I can't wait um, for our listeners to dive in and I'm sure they'll listen to this episode many times over. So thank you again for your time and hope to connect again soon. Oh, I'm most grateful to you, Steph, for having me and for your beautiful and intelligent questions. I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks again. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Real. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.